Hi folks, I'm Tilden Reamer-Leach, and you're listening to Forces That Move Us, Lost Homes and Solutions Amidst the Chaos. few episodes, we heard stories of the devastating effects of the 2016 earthquake on the lives of Ecuadorians and how both the Ecuadorian government and local citizens came up with a wide variety of solutions. In those stories, the Ecuadorian government often depicted itself on the front lines of the rebuilding and resettling effort. But what happens when the government itself is the cause of the displacement? When they say buy off the local people, do you know do you know what that figure looks like generally or it would make the people almost feel bad I guess. Like if we say no to mining we're losing our community all of these mm-hmm. issues. Like there'll be that aspect to it I guess. Today is the day. So today I'm with a group of American students, Peter Shear, a UVM professor, and Clever a community member of Hunin and resistor to the mine. So, as of now, the Ecuadorian state-owned mining company, in partnership with a Chilean mining company, Codelco, have taken over the area without the full consent of the community of Hunin. They have begun the exploration phase in the mine. This involves taking 90 core samples in different areas of primordial cloud forest to determine the percentage of copper in the ground. The mining company says that taking samples has little to no environmental effect. But that's just complete bogus, because it involves drilling 100 meters into the earth, which churns up all of the sediments that have been lying in the ground for thousands of years and exposes them to oxidation, releasing chemicals into the air and water systems. Clever says that the rivers have already been completely contaminated, and no one can drink the water. We are here today as witnesses. So then would they have to like build a massively larger road if they were gonna actually open the mine? Wouldn't they have to put some massive amount of infrastructure into here? Yeah, absolutely. When they mine, they just like dig out a big hole. Yeah, but all the roads around here are literally just like thin dirt roads. If you're gonna get like any amount of product in and out. That's a great question. Um, I'm not sure. Ah, yeah. Ah, yeah. Delante está. Okay. Um, so, yes. Ahead of us, we are walking towards the entrance gate to the mining concession. There's um, basically a wooden fence. Sort of looks like a picket fence that you'd see um, in someone's lawn in the States back in the 50s, but a little bit taller. It sort of looks like it's been hastily constructed to block off this one lane dirt road that we've been walking down in the middle of the jungle. And there's a loose chain and lock securing the gate closed. It's interesting because Peter just told us 
that the exploration phase drilling has been going on in land owned by the Huning community, actually. So the miners don't have legal right to be here. Yet here they are. And it turns out that they just built this fence last week. Can you believe that? And now they make everyone who wants to enter sign in with their passport and personal information. It's basically a scare tactic designed to intimidate people like us from going in and seeing what they've done. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone chuckles to themselves as we pass around the sign-in sheet and write down funny fake names. It feels like a small way we can take back some minuscule amount of power and agency. A man in an orange vest opens up the gate, suspiciously eyeing our group of foreigners as we pass by. In recent years, a lot of research has proven that development-induced displacement has produced a larger number of displaced people than conflict-induced displacement. Yet, the millions forcibly removed by the buildings of dams, roads, mines, etc., find themselves left out of the conversation regarding refugee protections. And a key challenge is the fact that displacement due to development is largely justified along nationalists or economic lines in a way that for the most part um, can't be done in, in conflict situations. Hey guys, another quick update. It seems there are two men in orange vests who work for the mine who are following us around as we're trekking down this steep jungle path. It's it's another scare tactic for sure. So I'm talking with Clever, one of the community guides. He is in his mid-twenties, I'd say, and has a kind but somewhat solemn face. I'm following him down a very narrow and steep and muddy path, trying to make our way to see a waterfall that has been contaminated. And I'm simultaneously trying to take pictures, ask him questions with my recording equipment, make field notes and carry this huge pack on my back, and trying to hold on to random branches so I don't slip down the muddy path when all of a sudden... Yep, that's me falling down. I managed to get my whole butt all covered in mud. It was a great, great little moment there. <laughs> Man, journalists really don't talk about how crazy and clumsy you can feel trying to collect field research and interviews. That day, I felt like I had to capture every second of every experience, since 
I never knew what little bit of audio I would end up needing. This reminded me of a conversation I had with three current and former University of Virginia students who received a peace prize from their university to help develop economic alternatives to the mine in Hunin. They have been living in the community for six months. start by going around and just saying your name and where you're from. Hello, my name is Emma Carnes and I'm from Ithaca, New York. My name is India Brahm and I'm from Alexandria, Virginia. My name is Patrick Robinson and I'm from Fairfax, Virginia. As I stumbled clumsily through the mine, I thought to myself, I'm doing the exact same thing countless journalists have done before me. What good will my reporting do? especially when the mine is already in its exploratory phase. And it just seems almost cruel to ask the Huni locals to repeat their lived experiences over and over again, reliving glory moments that were short-lived and the growing sense of hopelessness. As everyone knows, is a certain kind of extractivism that has to do with natural resources but what a lot of people aren't so familiar with is another kind of epistemological extractivism. There are so many researchers from all over the world, European countries, France, Germany, the US, come there every year with the sole goal of sort of extracting knowledge and information. And in most cases, that information and that knowledge only serves their own interests. They may get an A on a term paper or have something published, but in most cases, the benefits of that, you know, epistemological extractivism doesn't reach back to the community itself, right? I think thinking about the role of not only the researcher, but of a, a foreigner coming into these circumstances, I think there's a really big opportunity not only to show solidarity, that the people who have been fighting this fight for the past 20 years, though it's their immediate experience, they're not alone in that. There are people throughout the world that care, that are interested, that have similar points of views. Um, and that are, are working to leverage their resources and their network to be supportive in whatever way could be helpful to the community. So I think those kind of journalistic and academic endeavors oftentimes open the doors for the kind of activism that the community actually wants and needs. Patrick and India have a point. No matter how you spin it, it's true. In some ways, I'm just a miner, a miner of knowledge. But this isn't just about me. I'm hoping that the Spanish version of this podcast, called Lo Que Nos Mueve, will at least be able to make it on radio stations across Ecuador and into the community of Junín, where the residents themselves will be able to hear their story told by them. With these discomforts in my heart, my mind refocused on Clever. Since the resistance to the mine started 25 years ago, I realized Clever must have been a little boy when this whole thing got started. I wondered what he thought about this whole conflict when he was a little kid. At that age? Well, I was just a child. How old was I? Five, maybe eight years old. Back then I thought about what most kids think about. Studying, eating, playing in the woods. I played all the time. But over time I grew up 
and I discovered the reality of the situation, the damage the mine would cause. Clever is one of five families in Hunin that still remain strongly opposed to the mine. That's five families, 15 people, when it used to be hundreds. I wondered, what has kept this resistance alive? You know, what makes Clever keep fighting? Why are you in the fight today? For the rights. Yeah. For the rights, the rights of the people, for the rights of us, the rights of liberty. I fight for our rights. I fight for our rights to be free. For our rights to live without pollution, water contamination, land contamination. We have the right to live freely. They say Ecuador is a free and democratic country, but what freedom does the government give us? They say we are free, but this isn't freedom. It encloses us in a fear of contamination. Many people think that mining is development. Mining is development, yes, but only for the big mining companies, not for the community. The community will be left in shambles once the mine leaves. This, where we are standing right now, this is going to be left in rubbles. Not now, not yet, but in our future, for our future children, future grandchildren. Just then, we passed by the two guards in orange vests, who had been following us for the past three hours, deep inside the mining concession. As Clever passed them, he greeted them, managing to flash them a half-smile, and he knew them by name. It suddenly dawned on me that these men must be Clever's neighbors. They were all part of the community of Hunin. The only difference was, two of them now work for the mine, instead of against it. I was impressed that Clever could be so cordial. I, on the other hand, just felt so indignant. After just hearing Clever's impassioned case for resisting the mine, I had to know more about these men and how they could possibly flip sides. Yes, the uh, No, Garcia Moreno. ¿Tú de dónde eres? Eh, yo soy de la comunidad de aquí de Junín. One man said he was from a nearby town, and the other confirmed that yes, he was from Junín. They have been working in the mine since the latest mining company took the land by force in 2015. I wondered, what do they think about the blatant contamination? They wouldn't comment. I was deeply frustrated by their unwillingness to talk. But I also understood that they themselves were probably in a tough position. You know, it must be hard to know that you are contributing to something that will harm you and your community. You know, to know that you are contributing to your own future displacement. And it must be hard to feel that the deep connection you used to have with your neighbors has been lost. That is one of the themes that emerges most often in our conversations with community members. The fact that 
in many cases, families are themselves divided between those who oppose mining activity and those who either support it or work for the mine out of necessity. In the past, there were so many, you know, at times nearly violent confrontations between various parties with uh, opposing views. And uh, even today, the vestiges of that division exist. And in many cases, people just don't talk about it because otherwise normal community life could not go on. Otra noche de insomnio en mi soledad. There are countless social struggles around the world where people's collective identities are formed in connection to place. That doesn't mean that a place or a piece of land has to have a fixed identity. Rather, the concept of a place and how people perceive and relate to it is constantly being reshaped by the counter forces of global imagination and local realities. So for example, the arrival of the mining companies brought with them conflicting viewpoints and values of how the campesinos should be living their lives. So resistors of the mine often see themselves as living with the land, working hard, farming, and living a calm, peaceful life. Supporters of the mine, however, see themselves as living in poverty compared to the rest of the developing world, and view the mine as an opportunity to get ahead in life and benefit economically. If you can break the identity with a location, you can break the physical resistance. Lo que no quisiera es salir, salir que nos manden echando así como hacen. Se ve en otros lugares, en otros países que van máquinas, las máquinas van tumbando casas. What I don't want to do is leave having them throw us out here like I've seen them do in other countries. I've seen pictures of machines going in and knocking down houses, and the people have to flee. It's not right. People cling to mining. They think that mining is living well, but mining isn't living well, it is destruction. Let's hope that everything goes well, that everything keeps marching forward. Otherwise, everything will hold together until everything falls apart. Since that first environmental impact study in the 1990s, subsequent companies have found five times the amount of copper in the area, which would dramatically increase the size of the proposed mining concession, creating untold numbers of people displaced. The truth is, we still don't know how many people might have to relocate, which of course adds to increasing anxiety in the community. I also just wanted to bring up, since I know that you're interested primarily in displacement, um, I recently read a book by Rob Nixon uh, titled Slow Violence and the Environmentalism of the Poor. And he writes about a concept um, that he terms displacement in place that I think is very relevant here, is the situation where people, though they may not have been evicted from their homes and may be occupying the same physical space, no longer recognize the world around them because it's become so different. The social world is different. Values, ideas about work, about nature, and about one's place in the world have all changed to such an extent that your own home community is totally unrecognizable. And in the cases of these people who 
have occupied the land for generations and whose traditional life ways are being invalidated and made less and less viable as time goes on. Displacement in place is a very real reality where their local environment is being stripped of the very characteristics that once made it habitable and that once drew their ancestors there. So I don't know, it's just a different kind of displacement, not a physical one, more of like a cultural and social one. There can be many different factors that lead to displacement, which can complicate our idea of who qualifies as being a refugee and who doesn't. Environmentally induced displacement is especially hard to pin down because it doesn't just mean that one cause has one effect. There can be many different causes that produce many different effects, and violence in connection to the environment can take place over a long period of time making it that much harder to identify the culprit. Despite these dim prospects, there are many people who are investing in creating interesting alternatives to the open pit mine in Hunin. India, Patrick, and Emma are among them. They came to Hunin with the intention of furthering several initiatives that various community members have previously established. They are supporting a water quality monitoring initiative, providing technical instruments, increasing water testing locations, and the number of tests conducted per month in the mining concession. They also are supporting the Ecos Cabanas, an eco-friendly hotel which offers tours of the proposed mining area, and supporting other small-scale economic alternatives to mining that have popped up in the area. I do think it's important that when we think about alternatives to mine work, it's important that we understand we're evaluating success with a very different set of criteria. For example, the mining company evaluating the profitability of copper mining has a whole set of metrics um, that don't necessarily apply to these alternatives. Number of people employed, that's important, that's one, um, but it's not the whole story. Profitability, that's one, it's important, but it's not the whole story. And so I think when you think about alternative economic opportunities, it's really important not to look for the same metrics of success. You know, you're evaluating things um, in a very different context. Like you said, context is incredibly important. And so success could be political, certainly could be economic. Um, it could be spiritual, you know, this is a point of spiritual resilience. And so all of those I think are very important to keep in mind that you're not looking for two equally sized and shaped things and one can just replace the other. And so I think looking for alternatives to mining, it's important not to map on the same capitalist industrial framework to plantain flour, which is one of the um, community alternatives, or ecotourism or coffee production, um, because to me, that, perhaps more than anything, is where a lot of these issues stem. So that being said about ecotourism, um, I think Hunin actually presents a really fantastic opportunity of where ecotourism has been really successful. The Echo Cabanas is a nice ecotourism hotel that we will be staying in right after we finished touring the mine. 
It's nestled into the cloud forest, and you can hear all types of birds chirping there. The forest feels alive. The residents of Hunin come together and cook for the guests, sharing in the profits. A few other economic alternatives include Arena de Platano, or Plantain Flower, a women's collective that is working on selling this unique product in other areas of Ecuador and around the world. Another one is Mujer y el Medio Ambiente, which is a women's artisanal group that makes handicrafts out of cabuya. And a local coffee collective, where any local farmer can deposit their beans for higher returns, since they negotiate directly with vendors instead of working through a middleman. We went there yesterday to sample some of their coffee, and it was quite tasty. Yeah, these are all great opportunities that, again, can't match the mining company in terms of scale or perhaps even daily wages, but present an alternate vision of development for the region, which is far more based on, you know, in the view of local activists, Sumat Kausai or Buen Vivir, which emphasizes, you know, environmental preservation and regeneration, satisfaction of basic needs, territorial autonomy, um, for local people, and a number of other commendable characteristics, but not necessarily a kind of utility-maximizing capitalism that aims at ever-increasing degrees of consumption. At this point, our group has been hiking deep into the cloud forest for the past several hours. We just arrived at what is known locally as Las Gemelas, or in English, the Twins. It's a pair of cascading waterfalls that come together into one waterway that then feeds through the whole town of Junin and actually extends all the way to the western coast of Ecuador where the earthquake happened. They used to be two identical fountains of crystal clear water. However, the mining company drilled one core sample a few meters above one of the waterfalls. And it's now spraying down brownish water and the rocks around it are stained red with contamination. You can check out a picture of this contaminated water on my website, www.forcesthatmoveus.com. There are 90 of these core samples all across the mining concession. And collecting these samples actually isn't easy work at all. It involves mules and cranes that come in and tear out whole sections of primordial cloud forest in order to make way for large machinery and cement drilling platforms. Even worse is the fact that the mining company can't seem to acknowledge that this exploration phase leaves very serious environmental damage. We test for pH, we test for temperature, um, electrical conductivity, and total dissolved solids. Um, and so that's what you can tell with the portable meter. And then over the past few years, there have also been a number of samples that have sent to state verified labs 
um, to test for the presence of heavy metals, but unfortunately that's been infrequently done. So we're hoping that with some of our grant funding, we can support um, increasing the frequency of those efforts. The current mining company, Codelco, does their own water testing. However, they test the water at a much lower elevation and farther away from the core sampling sites, essentially choosing to test more diluted water. And they have no obligation to disclose their official results. As we slowly hiked back out of the mine, saying goodbye finally to our friends in orange vests, I passed by an overlook. You could see a green valley down below, with several mountain ridges that fed into it in all directions. I stopped and asked Clever how far the open pit mine would extend. All of it, he replied. It was almost too much for me to picture, replacing this lush landscape with an enormous brown pit, just chopping off the tops of each of those mountains, just in order to have more copper. Um, so I had a friend visit me, um, who graduated with me, who's a chemistry major. And I was telling him all about Kunin, and he was like, yeah, but you know, um, everyone uses copper every single day. It's the resource we need. Mm -hmm. And it's the resource we need to build technologies that could, you know, potentially help people in millions of ways in the future, you know? So uh, I think that's a really hard question to kind of mm -hmm. grapple with um, between, you know, everyone's need for copper and this mine going to be affecting the environment. Um, what do you guys think is is the balance or how should we grapple with that reality? I think first and foremost it's really important to consider and perhaps even meditate on the meaning of the word need and how it's invoked in certain contexts. Um, for example, coming to Inthag, talking with the people and seeing the degradation, you really get a sense of the need for water. You know, that is something that cannot be replaced, it cannot be substituted, it is what it is. And when it's been destroyed, when it's been degraded, there is no alternative. You know, copper does not replace the ability of water to sustain and to nourish life. You obviously have one group that experiences the localized harmful effects of mining who often have been left out of the process of deciding whether or not this mine um, should be implemented, whether or not this mining should take place. And then you have the consumers who oftentimes are located far away from the mining, from this slow violence, from the displacement in place, um, to whom it's, it's a lot easier to conceptualize both on the level of an abstract humanity, of future generations, the need for a certain material. Um, and so I think for that reason, it's incredibly important that the local communities who are particularly affected, oftentimes negatively, really have the option to voice their own desires and their own equity, their own stake in the matter, um, and that their, their voices aren't overruled or discounted in some utilitarian scheme. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny because in one way, I very much agree with your friend, the chemistry major. You know, he says, as long as we continue to consume copper and we have what we perceive as a need for copper, then this kind of environmental degradation is inevitable. But it's from that point where I think he and I take the opposite stance, which is to say that, well, if copper, large-scale copper extraction necessitates environmental degradation, then rather than saying environmental degradation is an inevitable consequence because we need copper, we say maybe we need to reduce our copper consumption because environmental degradation of this kind is a line that we're not willing to cross. Another question that had been itching at me since we left the mine was, what can we do as global citizens about issues like this that are happening all around the world? We can say, oh, too bad for the people and animals and plants in these places all we want, but it's not going to mean anything until we put our money where our mouth is and actually change what we're doing. Because the fact of the matter is, per capita consumption in the U.S. is light years higher than it is anywhere else in the world, you know? I mean, the copper that is extracted here, a large percentage of it is likely to go into the very electronics and other kinds of materials that we ourselves consume. As I said goodbye to Clever and thanked him for his time, I had to ask him one more poignant question. What was the meaning of all of this? You know, of, of life? Porque si no, si no sabes vivir, si no has vivido, no sabes vivir. Tienes que saber sufrir, saber gozar. Um, I think if you haven't suffered, you haven't lived. You have to know what suffering is to know what living fully and joyfully is. Because, well, if you've always just taken and taken and enjoyed life without reflecting, then one day something bad will happen and it will become a crisis. You have to know how to follow the waves and let them hit. You have to know how to suffer in order to know how to live. Or am I wrong? Oh, no, it's mal. No, yo creo que tú, yeah, es correcto. Clever was right. There was something to it. He reminded me that the poverty of a broken spirit can be much worse than the poverty of income alone, and that the human spirit has an extraordinary power to withstand almost anything. Clever's words also speak to the power of serving your community, of living a life of purpose and keeping the flame of hope alive. While I was producing this episode in early 2020, almost a year since I visited the mine, I called up Peter Shear to ask him for an update on the developments in the mining concession. He let me know that Codelco had finished their exploration phase and they were just waiting to get their final licensing approval to begin the initial exploitation phase, creating an open pit mine.
quiera que vaya, te llevo en mi corazón. If you would like more information and photos from the stories on this podcast, please go to www.forcesthatmoveus.com. If you would like to listen to a Spanish version of this podcast, please search Lo Que Nos Mueve on iTunes or by going to our website. In the Spanish podcast, we cover the same themes, but sometimes the content is different. I'll also post a link in the show notes. Thank you to the National Geographic Society for supporting the production of this podcast. And thank you to Alex Alviar for the lovely intro music. You can find the full album by searching Equatorial on Spotify. Other music in this podcast includes Anorando Mi Tierra by Milton Conde, Ausencia by Alex Alviar, Meadow by Destiny and Time, Species by Damon Ortiz, Wishful Thinking by Dan Leibowitz, I Love Destruction When It Serves Love by Algae, Go On Going by Stay Loose, Gone by Audio Binger, Siesta by Jazar, Trophy Wife by Rondo Brothers, Urban Lullaby by Jimmy Fontanez and Doug Maxwell, They Might Not by Puddle of Infinity, Black Ant by Fader Lee, and Waterfall Small B Wave by Inspector J at www.jshaw.co.uk of freesound.org. <laughs>